0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Education Minister Stephen Lecce announced some more protocol as kids head back to school, but unfortunately couldn't tell us when they are going to head back to school. COVID-19 vaccination supply continues to worry Canadians. Do we have the ability to produce our own? New airline restrictions are now in place. What it means if you're trying to get back into Canada. And General Motors has set high goals to get away from gasoline and diesel engines by 2035. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Kurt, uh intro not available today but we'll be back tomorrow feel free to jump into the conversation we would love to hear from you facebook and twitter you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary there uh big show coming up today lots to talk about in regard to uh vaccines and schools reopening uh or are they education minister Stephen lecce speaking earlier on today uh, uh holding a press conference i think a lot of people were hoping that uh we would hear some concrete dates as to when uh kids in the hamilton area the greater toronto hamilton area uh, would be going back here's a sample of what uh, the education minister had to say
1: in the context of the way forward, I, I think we're, we've been consistent that we want to get all students in all regions of our province back to school. That is a consensus position of our government uh, with the medical community. We heard clearly from the Council of um, Medical Officers of Health, and we agree with the premise. It is important for children to be within schools for their mental health and their development. We are looking forward to advice from the Chief Medical Officer of Health and medical community about how we can get all students back. Uh, we know parents want certainty on the matter, and we hope we can provide that in the coming days To based on uh, risk assessment and, more importantly, based on the new protocols, the stronger, stricter protocols put in place to make sure that when we reopen, all kids can be safe in this province.
0: Let's bring in uh, Travis Danraj, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He is with us now. Travis, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Are you there, Travis? Hey, Scott, now I can hear you. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Uh, so what were your thoughts on Lecce's announcement? I think a lot were hoping that they might get a firm date, uh, at least, uh, on this. Uh, what was the buzz?
2: So, listen, I was just listening to that clip again, and I'm, I'm always amazed at how, you know, many words can be said without really much substance and, you know, dancing around the question. I mean, when parents saw that there was going to be a news conference with the Minister of Education today, knowing that, you know, February 10th was next week, is next week, you know, they thought perhaps they'd get some clarity. That certainly did not happen. And we, instead, we got, uh, you know, an announcement about allocation of funding and a lot of stuff that we frankly already knew.
0: So was there any sort of indication that this was coming in the next couple of days or so? Because we, we I sort of saw rumblings over the weekend that, you know, it, it was basically prepare to go back, prepare to go back. Um, but, again, we didn't hear that word today. It, is that it, it will – obviously, that something will have to come before the end of the week.
2: Yeah, they're going to have to do another announcement to, to give parents, you know, some sort of clarity very soon here. But, you know, they, they – Behind the scenes, the Ministry of Education is saying that that is still the goal, February tenth. But they have to look at a number of factors, and as we talked about on the show numerous times before, uh, you know the variant is now uh, playing a part in that decision making process, and whether or not that is going to uh, impact that February tenth date. Now, interestingly, the minister was also asked whether or not, if school does go back, he would be willing to cancel the March break, and he didn't say one way or another uh, if he is going to do that so you know that leaves open the door uh to possibly no march break
0: well it's not like we can go anywhere so (laughs) what the heck (laughs) um Uh, my next question was going to be travis how much is or are these new variants a factor in these decisions because again we are seeing uh the new caseload go down but obviously uh health officials are very concerned about this variant and that is uh it seems to be the reason for the hesitancy at this point
2: it, it certainly does, because you are right. I mean, the case numbers have gone down significantly, but we don't know a lot about, you know, uh, what the variants, uh, you know, how the variant spreads within children particularly. We know that, you know, in general, the UK variant, for example, is 56% more transmissible, uh, but we don't know a lot about how uh, that affects children. So there are, you know, some X factors right now, and the, the health team is looking at this. And you'll remember, um, you know, when the kids were supposed to go back after the Christmas break, it was they're going back. And then four days later, it's like, actually, no, they're not going back. So, you know, they don't want to be in that situation again. I think they want to make sure that they uh, have all of their ducks in a row before they do an announcement, which is, you know, the other question is, why didn't they do all of this together in one announcement later in the week as opposed to kind of teasing uh, uh, you know an, another announcement to come I was looking at my Twitter feed somebody said this feels like a rerun of an announcement that we have seen previously and it certainly felt
0: that way to a lot of people now there were some uh, students that did go back today is that accurate
2: yeah that is correct so I, I mean right now we're talking about uh, the hot zones that are right. possibly going back on February 10th possibly not but you're right there are some districts that did go back today like Ottawa is one of them as well uh, and and so the other question that a lot of people had is, okay, you're you're delivering a, a reopening plan uh, on the day when school is opening in many different regions. Why didn't this plan come earlier? So, I I mean, there certainly are a lot of questions for the Minister of Education that remain, even after today's lengthy news conference that weren't answered. We will see if uh, Premier Ford says anything today. He doesn't have his usual uh, availability, but he is doing a photo op, and generally he does take one or two questions
0: at that point in time. He's at a long-term care home today delivering meals. Do we know what time that is, Travis?
2: That is going to be at 1 o'clock or so. so Okay. You know, we will find out at that point whether or not the the premier weighs in.
0: So what about protocol uh, for going when the kids do go back in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, if they do on the 11th, uh, and masking and such? He did make some announcements regarding uh, lower ages wearing masks.
2: Right. So, you know, a lot of school boards right now already require this, but it has been optional up until this point. Mandatory masking for students in grades 1 to 3, Uh, including outdoors where physical distancing cannot be maintained is now going to be, uh, you know, implemented right across the board even if school boards have opted not to do that mandatory for one to three. Uh, They also announced today that they are going to be ramping up asymptomatic testing, but it's going to be voluntary uh, in in some of these hot zones. So there were some questions around that which weren't answered. They say that they're going to enhance screening of secondary students and staff. There's going to be new guidance to discourage students from congregating before and after class, which has been a major problem because they're supposed to stay in the cohorts when they're in class. But, you know, when they're out of class, that's been a major issue because the cohorts are intermingling
0: uh getting back to the march break issue uh do you you get the idea down there and and obviously you're just looking into your crystal ball at this point but do you get the idea that Do you get the feeling that uh march break is on the table in regard to working right through it
2: well i mean you know he certainly indicated today that it's not off the table but uh, in order for it to be on the table there are a number of factors i mean teachers uh aren't paid for that time, that essentially is their their, their right. And then yeah. agreement there would be some yeah. hurdles that the Ministry of Education would need to to jump over in order to make that happen.
0: Yeah, you'd have to get all the teachers on board and all their unions as well, I guess, in order for that to happen. Um, what what uh, did did he? And I watched the news conference, but did he uh, give any indication whether this would be prior to the end of the week before he would give us any sort of uh, leeway? Obviously, they're waiting for uh, the medical officers of health in those regions to to give them the green light, or at least that's what they're saying at this point. Uh, any buzz uh, on when that will happen? <laughs>
2: I mean, I, I wish. Have I already to... asked you that question, Travis? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I, wish, I wish I had a, a more solid answer for you in terms of uh, a date when we'll even find out. Uh, no, I get it. But we don't have that, and he didn't really indicate whether or not that was coming this week or early next week or on the week. We have seen him do weekend announcements sometimes. It could even come on the weekend, so who knows at this point.
0: All right, Travis Danraj has been with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Travis, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: Thanks, Scott. You too.
0: All right. So, uh, no new real information there, uh, from, uh, from uh, Minister Lecce earlier on this morning. He had a, a news conference uh, about 11 o'clock, 11.30 this morning. And many thought that, in fact, he would give us a, a date, an actual date of when school would be uh, reopening, in uh, certainly in the Golden Horseshoe area. And uh, that uh, certainly wasn't mentioned at this point. With it being the 1st of February and school scheduled to go back by, uh February 11th then you know obviously uh, you know a decision is going to be have to, uh, going to have to be made soon uh here's what the education minister did have to say
1: my position is informed by the medical community who believes in the fall uh, schools were both safe uh, places for children and for staff. And when we did uh, 9,000 tests uh, within the latter part of the year, it was sort of mid to late November to December, which, you know, to be fair in that, in that the last semester, in the first semester, if you will, that was that the highest rate of transmission we were experiencing within our, uh, within our schools um, and within our communities. Of uh, the 9,000 tests, students had a positivity rate of roughly 1.8%. There's a 1% positivity rate amongst those 9,000 tests uh, for staff and a higher level I believe around 4.5% for the parents, because we permitted the parents, uh, the, the family, if you will, the staff, and the students. I think what that indicated, the first phase, is that on the asymptomatic level, that spread just was not there. And we were, you know, the public health units in, across the province weren't, you know, targeting uh, the lower risk neighborhoods. They were really going into some of the highest rates of positivity to really understand, uh, could we identify any cases and better understand the rate of spread within schools? That helped inform the position. Uh, that um, schools have remained safe and not been places of transmission largely brought in from the community. But this is a position that's been provided by the Chief Medical Officer of Health and one that uh, we feel confident with the additional testing, both PCR for asymptomatic um, and uh, the antigen testing, uh, rapid one-hour testing for symptomatic parents. We think this will really help us maintain that reality and keep schools safe.
0: Uh, That's Education Minister Stephen Lecce speaking this morning. Uh, Again, those new variants... A, a concern uh, because at this point we don't know although we do know that they spread quicker we don't know what the situation is on how they spread and whether that changes uh, with younger kids uh, and obviously we've seen uh you know them not falling victim to this the way uh, the older demographics, uh, demographics have we have to keep aware of this for the new variants as well uh, another interesting point to come out of this where uh, obviously uh, they're trying to staff up some of these schools and a temporary change is being made to allow uh uh, eligible teacher candidates to obtain a new temporary certificate of qualification and registration, and uh, and that's intended to provide temporary staffing, stabilization, and relief uh, for the Ontario schools that are experiencing occasional teacher shortages and absenteeism uh, due to uh, COVID-19. So, uh, a lot still up in the air as far as uh, as far as the date that uh, students are actually going to head back. Uh, Many were hoping that we would get those uh, that date today or or that information today. Uh, But now, as it stands, uh, things uh, the same for February 10th. And uh, at this point, there's been nothing uh, said as to extending that. However, we are hoping to find out more this week. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Uh, Ahmad, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Doctor, today, obviously, a a press conference from the education minister. Many were hoping that they would get a firm date on on what, it hap- what is happening after the lockdown ends uh, in February, February 10th, 11th. Um, what is your concern as these kids head back to, to class? Because it appears that obviously the numbers are going down. They're leveling off a bit. So that's a positive sign that would probably have seen the kids go back. But obviously, people are concerned about the the new variants. How much are those new variants playing into this decision, do you think, to send the kids back?
3: Well, I think a new variant is playing a big factor, not just with the schools, but even with our closure of our international borders. However, when it comes to school, I think the big concern here, Scott, is that school boards are telling us that many of the strategies that were promised to be put into place into schools back in August with the reopening are actually still not in place. Um, and so, you know, for many of the schools that we today, uh, this is the first time kids are back to school since the, since the holidays. And we're finding out that many of the things that we were hoping to put in place around social distancing within classrooms, the number of students within each class have not actually been implemented across the province. And that's going to be a continuous problem. I mean, I mean, we can argue as much as we want about reforming our educational system, but unless we actually invest and make sure that those investments have been put into place, it's going to be very hard to think about, well, how will we deal with a new variant that might actually, again, shut down our educational system?
0: Do we know anything about the new variant and kids? I mean, are we just to assume that the new variant, uh, the kids will handle that the way they did the original COVID-19 Um, uh, a virus or could it be, could this somehow, this variant be different with kids?
3: We're still waiting on confirmatory data on the new variant and its effect on kids. But I will say this, earlier reports are saying that the new variant seems to be uh, more infectious or highly transmittable. That means that it can spread faster than what we already knew about COVID-19. And so that is a bit of a concern uh, about how fast it will go. And there is this thing where people are saying, well, we've closed our borders, well, technically somewhat are protecting our borders with the mandatory quarantine and the testing. Will we not get the variants? And the answer to that is that we're actually learning that the variants probably already exist in our communities right now
0: uh obviously uh now restrictions going in for air travel uh i guess it's easy to play uh monday morning quarterback in here at at this point and say too little too late um you know and we understand that some of this testing or some of the restrictions are going to take a, a while to get in place before this happens are you concerned or how concerned are you that with Uh, The restrictions on travel, for example, that we'll be able to keep a handle on this and we won't see a surge like we did over the holidays, over spring break.
3: I mean, that's the hope. I think what we're trying to do here, Scott, is that the government is trying to employ every policy tool at its disposal to make sure that we don't get a spike in the numbers. One of those tools is better screening at airports, mandatory on-arrival testing of international travelers, enhanced screening and sequencing to identify if there is new variants coming in uh, maintaining public health measures to keep people safe. All those are policy tools that the government is trying to put into play That you know, to prevent a spike in the numbers and to allow reopening to happen. I mean, that is the end goal here. Like, The goal here is that knowing that the vaccine is being delayed and we don't actually know anymore when is, uh, we're going to be able to vaccinate anybody who wishes to get vaccinated in Canada. Therefore, the government is really trying to make sure that every other policy tool at the disposal is being put into place One such tool is the international travel to really limit or control the community transmission uh, within Canada.
0: Let's talk about vaccines because obviously that's that's going to be an ongoing issue. We're hearing more and more of of shortages and such. What about Canada's capability of producing these? Because you know, I I, I was reading over the weekend in regard to the United Kingdom. Uh, obviously, now they're manufacturing their own, but they didn't up until this pandemic. So they started from zero. Uh, just like everybody else, I guess, and then got to where they are now, that was the direction that they decided to uh, to take. But again, you, you know, there's a situation where they weren't doing it and yet ramped it up really quickly. Is there any way we can do that?
3: Well, I'm glad you brought this up because, I mean, the UK example is a bit different because, Scott, in the UK, they had the facilities to, uh, if they choose to make a vaccine, they can access. The reason why Canada is unable to produce its own vaccine Simply put, is that we don't have the facilities. The federal government never invested uh, time and effort and money primarily to build such facilities that if we need to manufacture a vaccine, we can use them. Hence why we relied on outside one. And to answer the question as to why we have not invested this, although the Chidor government has, you know, repeatedly said they're going to invest in this, it's because of previous governments. Uh, that really stopped uh, many of the attempts to build facilities including johnson and johnson at one point was actually uh, producing vaccines in canada or attempting to produce vaccines in canada but their lack of support from the federal government led to them leaving our country and the best way to explain this is you know for the longest time in canada we never had an issue with getting vaccines we had very good deals with pharmaceutical companies around the world and we never really had a shortage of vaccines. So therefore, we never really felt the need to build our own facilities. Why do we need to build our own when we can get it from outside? uh, Until now, the pandemic has showed us that we failed in that front, and that when the time comes, when there's something called vaccine nationalism, where every country that produces the vaccine is going to keep the vaccine its own shores, and less so to export it. Now we learn the hard way that we should have probably invested effort and money to build our own facilities. So when this time comes that we're living in now, we don't have to depend on foreign trade. We can just build our own.
0: But again, doctor, it's not governments that produce vaccines. It's private companies that produce vaccines. It's up to governments to create a situation or an environment, whether um, through whatever means to, to make it compatible, make it worthwhile for them to, to 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 produce those vaccines here um a, you know and and make the business environment uh, uh, uh obviously uh uh to the point where they yeah. want to come here i'm sorry i'm stumbling my words today um you know so and we've also talked to providence uh, therapeutics they say they're working on a vaccine right now uh they were banging on the door in march and april and no one would listen to them now they are getting some funding but by the time that you know, this vaccine and this is one of the newer vaccines comes out. It'll be towards the end of January uh, of next year. And, you know, as far as facilities, we don't have a lot, but they were talking about even being able to use that National Research Council facility that was involved with the, with the CanSino deal. and And they were sort of told no. So uh, you know, again, it, it, the governments don't make vaccine vaccines. They create an environment so private company can, companies can come in and and produce vaccines. Again, th- there's lots of Canadians that are saying we do have this. We do have the capacity if you just give us some support.
3: Well, exactly. It's it's governance. It's about leadership structure. So I agree with you. Pharmaceutical companies are the ones who are interested in charge of developing the vaccine. However, however. The government is the reason where they can facilitate an environment that is conducive to building a vaccine. So, for example, you brought up, uh, you know, the uh, province and the issue with it is that, you know, you can want to build the vaccine and have the capacity to build the vaccine. But if I'm going to spend so much time negotiating with the federal government about where to build, where the facility that's best conducive for that tax benefits, that time should be invested into building the vaccine and getting it out there into the market. Uh, that's what the uk has been able to do that's what pfizer in the us had been able to do and moderna they were able because they already have those things in place to move quickly from you know dealing with administrative tasks to really dealing with how do we develop this in the fastest time possible and the safest way and how do we move forward i will tell you this the one positive thing that's coming out of this and you know i always try to put a positive twist on things mm-hmm. is that the government is listening and this is really i mean the chief czar of the vaccine has really alerted the red flag that this cannot be a missed opportunity. We cannot walk away from this and not realizing this massive gap in our own ability to produce our vaccines. The same thing with PPE. If you remember last year, around this time, we were having a similar conversations about why are we not producing our own PPE uh, when we had shortage and Donald Trump at the time threatened to cut our PPE supply from the U.S. through M3M. And so, it, again, it, I think it's showing us the gaps where investments need to happen. And hopefully, the hope is that the government is paying close attention to this. And moving forward, we're really putting into place things that will make sure that we're protected.
0: Um, um, there was lots of chatter last week about Pfizer and five doses uh, versus six out of a vial of uh, vaccine vaccine. Um, it, it takes a special type of syringe, I understand, in order for that to make that happen. Uh, is this a viable option? Can we do this?
3: I have not heard any reports to really indicate that, that is the direction we're going to. Actually, if you speak to all the infectious disease specialists and people from Pfizer and Moderna, there seem to be reiterating the same key message, which is that please stick to the schedule we put forward. Please stick to the guidelines we put forward, which is. Two doses of the vaccine, either 21 or 28 days, don't mess around with it. And then the issues is about distribution, then we need to think about better ways to get the supply up uh, to the numbers that we're having. I mean, the pressure is really there. Uh, and it's felt across the country right now from the most senior leadership in government at the federal level. They are feeling the pressure about this vaccine because, unfortunately, everybody, for the most part, overpromised and underdelivered.
0: Do we have this new type of syringes? Do you know, doctor?
3: I I do not know the answer to that question. I don't know if we have those type of syringes, but but I think that the pressure is going to remain on, can we get enough of the vaccine? Because what we did here in the past week is that Pfizer has, We confirmed a a thing that we always thought about is that you can't mix the vaccines either. So you can't use one dose of the Pfizer Pfizer, and then use another Mm. dose of the Moderna to fill that gap, which again confirms the initial guidelines, which is that you need to have two doses of the vaccine within the time frame that we've told you to have. Uh, And if the matter is about distribution and supply, let's think about ways to do it. And in the meantime, we continue practicing public health interventions and lockdown measures in place. And so that's the other key part, though, you know, we need to focus the conversation on is that in the meantime, while we wait for us to resolve this vaccine debacle, I think we need to stay the course with our vaccine, with our public health interventions in place
0: yep gotta remember uh what really uh flattens these curves and that is the protocol of hand washing masking and social distancing and uh that's going to be the uh that's going to be the call until we get at the other end of this dr Ahmad khalid has been with us health policy expert doctor as always thank you so much for the time be well thank you scott thank you you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml here's today's daily commentary Canada is falling farther and farther behind other advanced countries in vaccinating its citizens against COVID-19. We have dropped below 20th and will continue to slide as more vaccine shortages are announced. Despite pointing to the size of our portfolio and what will be here by fall, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has failed to explain why he spent the early stages of this global pandemic concentrating his efforts on a deal with a Chinese company instead of investing in our own plants or writing production deals so when available we could produce the life-saving vaccine. Instead, the Prime Minister put all his eggs into the Chinese Communist Party basket, despite them constantly bullying the free world, including the two Michaels. We have already heard from Canadian companies that are quite capable of manufacturing these vaccines, but they need government support. The UK did not manufacture vaccines before COVID-19 either, but they do now. Despite starting from scratch less than a year ago... They found a solution. Why didn't Canada invest in a homegrown solution at the beginning? That is the question the Prime Minister should be answering and why he would make a deal with the devil, that is, the Chinese Communist Party. I'm Scott Thompson. Here's what Aaron O'Toole, a leader of the opposition, had to say on the Roy Green show this past weekend on vaccinations.
4: But look at the numbers. You'd need to, to vaccinate 30 million Canadians by, by September, and that would mean about 2 million doses per week. How many did we get this week? Zero. So I'm not sure when we're seeing huge reductions how he can forecast meeting his target. People need to know when they can expect to be uh, vaccinated. They want to know that the vulnerable, the 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 long-term care homes, and our first responders and essential workers are taken care of first. Um, And this sort of each year, the number going down and down and down is causing real concern across the country, which is why we think they should release the contracts and be straight with Canadians. Justin Trudeau has not learned any of the lessons from the first wave of the pandemic. We saw last March and April PPE being hoarded, not being able to cross borders. We saw planes not leaving China with, with PPE for Canada we knew that this would happen again with vaccines, which is why we really should have built the capacity to manufacture here directly under license or, or through a partnership.
0: Uh, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the opposition talking uh, about the contracts and the delay of the supply coming to Canada. Canada has now fallen below 20th uh, of developed countries, 20th in the world uh, as far as uh, vaccinating uh it's uh, citizens were just sitting at just over 2% of the population uh that has been vaccinated uh to date and uh as time goes on we just keep falling farther and farther uh down that list and uh certainly it appears like Canadians attitudes are changing but 44% cor- according to this Angus Reid uh poll think Canada has done a poor job of securing sufficient doses for the COVID-19 vaccines according to a new poll by Angus Reid Institute and a number that has uh, Uh, more than doubled since polling just six weeks ago. To talk more about this, Dave Krasinski is with us, Research Director, Angus Institute, and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
5: Yeah, you too, Scott. How's everything going?
0: Well, you know, as can be expected in uh, week number forty-seven of this. So, what are your thoughts? How has public perception of this changed? Because for the longest time, it appeared can't, Canadians were fine with this. You know, uh, we got to make sure it's approved. We got to make sure this that. And now it appears that uh, Canadians are becoming a bit more anxious about this.
5: Yeah, and you can see the the correlation with the number of Canadians that want the vaccine, um, and and now this this growing impatience and you know a lot of this is is frustration because people have been asked to to you know uproot their lives over the course of the last year the restrictions are actually getting a, a tougher in a lot of areas a lot of provinces are saying that you know we've really got to double down on this and and people are saying you know okay but we want to know that the vaccine is coming if we're going to be making these sacrifices so uh, so i think that's what you're seeing is just frustration and as you mentioned we asked him. The beginning of December, when uh, a lot of the forecast looked pretty good in terms of the vaccines that we were going to be getting in Canada and the timeline, uh, 47% said that they thought the government had done a good job in securing those vaccine uh, doses for Canadians. Just 23% thought that they'd done a poor job, and then a, a significant portion didn't know. But if you look at that 47-23, that, that's a two-to-one uh, for the positive uh, for the government. When you look at the numbers that we have now. Uh, that released just last week uh, now 44% say that they don't think that the, that Canada has done a good enough job they're seeing us falling behind and, and 36% think that we've done uh, a sufficient job so now the uh, the negative is, is winning by 8% when it was up by 24 points in december so you could see the the really stark shift and the public opinion pressure that the government is undoubtedly facing. And I think that this is really baked into what they're expecting. I think they know that, that this sort of thing is going to happen when we have these delays and, and why you hear them trying to double down and say, you know, we're still on that same timeline, but I don't think that uh, everybody's buying that now Um, just because of the delays. I think there's, there's some truth to what Aaron O'Toole was saying in terms of people want that confidence and they want to know what the, the schedule is and right now, that's just not really something that I think the government can offer because there's so many variables that are unknown.
0: It seemed odd, too, because at the beginning of this, uh, people seemed fine to wait as long as they felt that, that that's the way the, the rest of the world was getting along, and, and that was just a problem. You know, there's a shortage. Everybody wants it. Only so many places produce it. You're going to end up here. However, that's obviously changed, and... And is that due to the fact that Canadians see where they are in the world, like this list that I, I was talking about, we've, we've dropped below 20th uh, when it comes to per capita, how many what percentage of our population were, we're actually vaccinating. It, as we go down on lists like that, is that what's making the public anxious?
5: I think so. I think it's a combination of, of one people when when we were a little bit more, Uh, I would say, uncertain about the consequences of vaccination. People really were quite hesitant, um, even up until about November. You know, we had 38% of Canadians in September saying that they would wait for the vaccine and just 39% saying that they would get it. So that population was basically split. If you look at where we are now, it's 60-20 instead of 40-40. 60% say that they want the vaccine right away, and only one in five who are going to get vaccinated say that they're willing to wait and see how it goes. So there's really a a sentiment that people want it now. And then if you just look at, you know, south of the border, we always compare ourselves to the Americans. Um, Granted, they have some advantages in terms of uh, the actual vaccine manufacturing. Um, We're, we're, I believe, four times per capita lower than than the United States right now. That number might have increased over the course of the last week. Um, And people look at it and and we're at a standstill and, and you've got people... Um, in certain parts of the country where the the provincial governments have decided that they were going to go forth and distribute all of the vaccine, and yeah. that they had uh, sufficient doses to do the second the second uh, vaccination within two weeks, and now we've heard that you can go up to three weeks or you can go twenty eight days in between, and I think there's some distrust in terms of the information Canadians are getting. They're seeing that they, we don't have this, the doses to administer the second shot yet. And it's a little bit of a gamble. And I think there's all of those uh, factors are kind of uh, coalescing to create a, a situation where there's a lot of uncertainty and certainly a lot of frustration with what, what we're seeing.
0: You talked about looking to the United States, and that's a a very valid point. You know, I think a lot of Canadians were looking down at the U.S. uh, during the early stages, uh, you know, the first 40 weeks of this or so, and kind of smugly looking at the U.S. like, my goodness, can't you get your act together? I remember watching and saying to myself, watching U.S. news and thinking, wow, it's like watching Canada's news six months ago. I mean, they were so far behind. And they've literally, they will literally go from being pretty much dead last to first in all of this at the end. And 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 what does it do to Canadians to see them going from such a dismal start to then beating Canada? And 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 again, they they could end up beating it, beating everybody by the end. This by the time this is all over.
5: Yeah, you know what's interesting with that too is that so the the United States they're doing so much better, and they're still in somewhat of disarray, so it makes you wonder yeah. what Canada's doing, because, you know, the Biden administration comes in and says, you know, you wouldn't believe the shape that this thing is in, but they're still, you know, lining up at, at baseball stadiums to, to vaccinate, you know, 200,000 people in, in a few hours. Um, so you're seeing these really, despite the the kind of chaos... There really is the the thing that they do have is they've got enough doses to deliver and in in many cases doses that aren't being delivered because of some of the organizational issues, but yeah. the supply is there whereas in Canada we're having the the wrong pro the the reverse problem where you know we yeah. we're relying on everybody else to get the doses to us and I think that's where so much of the uncertainty comes from and the real challenges of the federal government and and this is really. You know, they want to have a federal election this year. This is going to be the defining factor in whether that happens, uh, I I think, is, is how this goes over the next few months.
0: Uh, last question here, Dave. Uh, we remember at the beginning of all of this, uh, leaders all around, they were their approval ratings were skyrocketing because everybody was so happy to see governments at different levels working together, and, and it seemed that everybody was rowing in the same direction and such. Uh, but the longer this goes, the harder this is on leadership as far as approval numbers. Is that accurate? Yeah,
5: it's been really difficult for a number of political leaders. And everybody in the country um without exception is down significantly and but that that goes to to uh there's quite a bit of variability you know in in bc john horgan's down from he was in the 80s down to i believe 69 percent in our last wave in um in ontario uh doug ford was down to really hovering around that 50 percent margin whereas he started again in in the 80s and, and people really they saw the way that he was reacting to the crisis and you remember the conversations about the new Doug Ford, and he had mm-hmm. set partisanship aside, and and he was a reformed guy, and he was taking everything seriously now. Um, but you see his his initial rating of uh, was up in in the the seventies, and now he's down to fifty percent, so really hovering on that that uh, majority mark. And that's that's really a trend that we've seen everybody. It's it's worst in Alberta, where you've got Jason Kenney down at thirty three percent, Brian Pallister having a tough time, too, at 35%. Um, but the longer this goes and the more delays there are, certainly the political leaders are going to take the brunt of that. And I think that's where uh, the Conservatives in Erin who are trying to build a little bit of momentum because they've had a very hard time federally um, in really getting some some momentum, some um, positive sentiment around O'Toole and his leadership, and I think that's where they're going to focus and try to make this seem like, you know, bungled management. And, and we'll see what happens with the numbers over the course of the next couple of months here.
0: Uh, as you mentioned, what does this do to an election? because we all know the liberals with this strong uh, or with the strong numbers that they've had uh, up until very recently or, or even now, um, that they're looking for an election. They want to get this called and and get a majority one and and move on. How do you think this is is there going to be a window this year for that? Do you think?
5: You know, I think it <laughs> I'm drawing parallels with my own personal life. You know, I've, I've got a wedding that's supposed to take place in October and we're thinking about, you know, is this, is this going to happen? Are we going to be in a yeah. place where we could set that up? Um, and I think for Trudeau, you know, obviously more serious and, and more, uh, a lot more people affected, but they're looking at this and saying, you know, how quickly do we signal our intent to do that? Cause if they get everybody that wants to be vaccinated, vaccinated by september i think there's no doubt that they want to do a, a, a an election in the fall do, does you know do the minority parties if they don't do they want to create an election in the fall to take advantage of that and i think what's interesting in all of this is that the situation hasn't really changed a ton so the liberals want to take advantage of it and get a majority we only have them up at 35 percent of of the national vote and in a lot of cases, that is that is not going to be enough to get a majority. So, they really need to keep, um, you know, improving over the course of the next number of months. And if they if they can do so, I think that they for sure will want to do that. I I have a hard time kind of predicting it right now because it really it depends on how this goes and and how the vaccination efforts go. If if for whatever reason, say some of these other contracts that they have with other manufacturers come through, um, maybe we're in a great spot. We've got if we get two more vaccines that are added to the supply. And these, these kind of unknowns, I think, are what's really defining it right now.
0: Dave Korsinski has been with us, research director at the Angus Reid Institute. Canadians growing more and more anxious over the federal vaccination plan and the lack of supply rolling into Canada. Dave, thanks for the time as always. Be well. No problem, you too. All right, lots of uh, confusion in regard to travel restrictions. Uh, It announced on Friday that uh, anyone now, as of now, coming into uh, Canada will have to quarantine for three days in a government hotel at the cost of $2,000 while you wait for your negative test uh... and then once you receive a negative test you can go home and finish your quarantine there if you receive a positive test uh... then it's off to uh... another situation uh... government situation in a hotel until either you test negative or uh... uh... you finish your two weeks i guess uh, as well, flights down to sunny destinations uh, between now and the end of April uh, also banned. To talk more about this, Rachel Gilmore with us, Federal Affairs Journalist for Global News and with us now. Rachel, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
6: Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: So are, are any of these, like this would all went into place at midnight uh, uh, this morning, are, are any of these actual uh, processes in place now?
6: So it's actually a little bit unclear. The government keeps saying that things are going to come into effect in coming days and like keep hinting that it's going to happen soon. Um, The transport minister has even said that he's telling people to be prepared for these measures to be in place as soon as February 4th. So that's Thursday. Um, but they haven't actually said concretely when people are going to be subject to these new measures. So as of uh, midnight uh, last night or this morning, depending on how you look at that uh, that kind of time, um, the uh, flights to sunny destinations have all been cancelled, so that's in effect now. But the other... Uh, the other changes aren't clear as to like when they're taking place, when, who they're applying to at that point. Like we know who they're applying to, but it's not clear when people are going to have to do this. So it's it's a, very confusing, as you can tell by my. Uh,
0: <laughs> so maybe <laughs> yeah. if you yeah. flew in like, so maybe if you flew in today or tomorrow, you'd whip right through with just yeah. the mandatory testing, of course.
6: Yeah, exactly. As it stands right now, the standard travel issues are in effect. So you come in, you have to quarantine for 14 days, um, all of that good stuff is still in place, but you don't have to do this three-day, really expensive hotel stay. So um, that, we're not totally clear on when it starts, but again, they keep saying as soon as Thursday.
0: Well, yeah, and obviously they're not going to put a date on it because they don't want you to jump the gun or the queue right now and try to slide through, and then all of a sudden one day, boom, uh, next thing you know you're in the three-day hotel. Now, um, obviously there's lots of chatter in regard to uh, the sun destinations, Caribbean, Mexico, whatever. Some are saying why not the United States destinations like the Arizonas, the Floridas, Hawaii's, whatever. They, You can still fly to those places. Is that accurate?
6: It is accurate. So um, that was something that people were really critiquing. They were wondering why, you know, a lot of Canadians go to Florida in the, in the winter. So um, I think a lot of people were wondering uh, why this only applies to the sunny destinations. But the only thing that just applies to the sunny destinations is the airline cancellations. So that's done on the part of the airlines. They're the ones who are making those cancellations. So right. it seems as though they only agreed to cancel those flights as opposed to a wider range. And the government has has said that if they broadened that flight ban it would hit potentially some of our deliveries that we expect in Canada mm-hmm. so it could have created a bigger issue however the other um, new restrictions that are going to go into place like the testing the hotel stay that's very expensive um, those affect anyone arriving into Canada so although you can get a flight to and from Florida you're still going to be paying at least two grand for your hotel stay when you get back
0: all right, that's clarity that I was looking for because I was wondering what if you do come back and assume all of these uh, this process is in place, if you do come back from an Arizona or a Florida or a, a Hawaii, you're still going to have to quarantine for those three days in a government hotel at the price of 2000 bucks.
6: Exactly. They have said that there are a few exceptions. I'm expecting that that's just for essential travelers. You know, they're not going to make a truck driver crossing the border. Um, well, I guess it, it doesn't apply to... Uh, land crossings anyways so that's a bad example but you know they're not going to force someone who's doing essential work and landing in Canada necessarily to follow all of these requirements and we're still waiting on the details of that though but for the most part you can assume that anyone who's taking a vacation out of the country is going to be subject to a lot of these measures.
0: So there might be any of those that sort of uh, snuck out the back door before any of these went into effect. They're going to still have to put up with these two weeks later, or three weeks later, whatever, when they return to Canada.
6: Yeah, exactly. And I got to say, Scott, I'm I'm seeing a lot of people who don't have a lot of sympathy for those people. Yeah. <laughs> when I was tweeting out this news, and uh, you know, all around social media, a lot of people have been saying, "Hey, well." You know, you were warned. <laughs> a lot of us are staying home freezing our buns off. And uh, so the fact that you went on vacation, a lot of people don't have sympathy for that. So uh, it's interesting, you, uh, the difference that we you wonder. You got of. to
0: wonder, though, Rachel, how they're going to logistically do this. Like, there you are. Yeah. You're getting off the plane from Florida. Are they just going to take you and you don't go out of the line? You cross customs, you get your bags, you go right to the hotel. Or, you know, are, are travelers going to have their luggage and see the open? doors and just dart out for a cab. I mean, you have to wonder how they're going to do this.
6: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of questions about that. Um, I will say that the, the testing itself is going to be taking place at the airport. So that's immediate. And it says that the hotel where they're going to be quarantining, quarantining is going to be nearby. Yeah. Um, so I expect that, I don't know if it'll be a shuttle or what. Um, but then they're also upping the enforcement of um, you know, those checkups because regardless of your test result, you still have to do a two-week quarantine. It's just whether that test result is positive or negative will affect whether you have to do that at a government quarantine facility or if you're going to be doing that um, at home. If they let you go home with that negative test, They are upping enforcement, and they've actually got contracts now with a few security firms. I believe they paid about $2 bucks to these firms that are going to be doing door knocking. So it's not just the RCMP doing it anymore. There's private security firms that are helping us oh up the government enforcement so yeah i gotta say i wouldn't want to be uh <laughs> i wouldn't want to be quarantining under uh you know i i wouldn't want to be coming back from a trip right now because there's a lot of confusion a lot of uh, strict new measures and it just sounds like it's very very complicated
0: this is going to be interesting as it rolls out uh, rachel gilmore with us federal affairs journalist with global news make sure you're watching global news for more on this tonight rachel thanks so much for the time be well
6: Thanks,
0: Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. General Motors said last week that it was setting a goal to sell all its new cars, SUVs, light pickups, with zero tailpipe emissions by 2035, a dramatic shift by the largest U.S. automaker away from gas and diesel engines. To talk more about all of this, Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well.
7: I am great, thank you. Glad to be with you today.
0: So does this mean that they're, they don't want to sell or they want to be through selling uh, gas and diesel engines by 2035?
7: So I'm going to say yes to that. Now, I view this as a longer-term statement. Remember, 2035 is roughly 15 years from now. I wouldn't start a timer and hold them right to one specific date. But they're doing this for two reasons. They are noticing that more and more states and countries are making commitments about getting rid of emissions. For instance, California has said that by 2035 they don't want any cars being sold that burn gasoline. So they're saying, well, if this is the way the world is going, we'd better move in this way. And then there are some I call them weasel words in the statement. For instance, they said all light-duty vehicles. So they're not necessarily making the commitment to uh, transport trucks or what we call these heavier-duty, you know, uh, bulldozers, uh, um, uh, road graders, those sorts of things. So you know, they're not saying it'll all be gone by that point, but they're really trying to set a direction for the next 15 years. And keep in mind, this is nothing short of, of revolutionary. In 2020, the year just passed, General Motors sold something like 2.5 million cars, and of those, 40,000 were electric vehicles. So as you can see, hardly hardly even makes a dent in their sales, and yet they believe that in 15 years that number is going to completely flop around and there will be hardly any cars being sold uh, in North America using gas, and everything will be uh, electric
0: what where do they expect uh technology to be by 2035 in regard to electric vehicles will will the issues that are concerning people as you said to buy so few of them now will that be resolved in 15 years
7: so that's that's what they're that's what they're hoping for so let me try to do that for you there are two major pe- problems people have with electric vehicles the first is the distance i go before i have to charge basically it's like you know what's my fuel economy how far do i go on a tank of gas in this case how far do i go on a tank of electrons and right now that range seems to be at around five hundred kilometers and then i have to refill so if i was uh... driving from from the hamilton area to london ontario and back i'm just kind of at the limit of my range at that point and i think people will get more comfortable we can get the tank of electrons up to six hundred kilometers seven hundred kilometers on one fill up then the second problem is when I do need to fill up today with gasoline, I pull into a gas station and I can pull out in two, three, four minutes, filling the tank of gas quite quickly, maybe paying at the pump and beyond the road. Right now, to put a new tank of electrons in takes 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 25 minutes, and if I was going to drive my vehicle to Florida, uh, uh, assuming I'm a snowbird and COVID is gone and I can do that, well, you know, how many of these rest breaks am I going to have to take? So we've got to fill the tank faster. My belief is, if I look at where we've come from in the last 15 years on batteries, uh, ex- getting more electrons, that won't be an issue. We can extend the range of the vehicle. That I don't see that as any problem. Putting electrons into the car faster Yeah, I think that is a bit of a technology issue, but they've got 15 years to try to resolve it, and even they're not going to be the only people working on this. If it's Elon Musk who solves it, they'll license the technology. So we feel feel that everything is going in the right direction, and that's why GM can make a statement like this.
0: Uh, Interesting uh, question from uh, a listener. How can scrapyards or even anybody who still would have a gas vehicle, uh, how would that pivot? But this would be a gradual thing over a year. It wouldn't like all of a sudden gas cars are stopped and and electric vehicles take over.
7: Right. So we we have to split the difference. We're talking about selling new vehicles. The question about the existing vehicles is one that government has to deal with. GM doesn't deal with that. That would be for government. Hmm. And to use an example, you know, I I still smile when I see a classic car, like a classic Model A or Model T Hmm. putting down the road normally in the summer, um, or a classic Mustang from 1967 I still like that, and and I don't think, this is going to be a question for the government, but I don't think they're going to say to you, well, I'm sorry, those cars, you're going to have to crush those cars. They're not allowed on the road. So there will be special licenses you get that will allow you to still have gasoline. It's just that the the new cars that we're buying are trying to be zero emission, and that is also because government policy says, for instance, uh, many countries in the world, Canada included, have said they want to have net zero emissions by 2050 if this is the way the world is going and i'm a car company i've got to match that i got to keep up
0: uh, you talked about this being a drastic shift we've certainly yeah. seen the announcement of two canadian plants eb plants uh in in ontario in the last little while uh and such uh that being said what about cost will they'll have to will there have to be rebates government rebates in order to get to these goals
7: So, uh, well, two things. First, uh, three plants now, actually, Scott, we're up to. So you've got Ingersoll, you've got Oakville, and you've also got Oshawa that are all going to be tooled into electric vehicles. Uh, In terms of buying them, uh, the more of them that get sold, the more we're going to understand the economics. Right now, an electric vehicle seems to be a little pricey compared to a gas-powered vehicle, and that's where government subsidies to encourage you to go there um, are being used. However, when you look at actually the cost of filling your tank, it's, it's cheaper to do that. And then when you look at the cost of maintenance, an electric engine runs completely differently. So, for instance, with your gas engine, you know that every so often you have to go in for an oil change. Well, what oil are they changing? Well, it's the oil that keeps that engine going so I can fire those pistons and make it happen. In an electric vehicle, I don't have those firing pistons going off. I don't need uh, all that antifreeze to, to, or or not antifreeze, the uh, the engine coolant to, Mm -hmm. to keep my car from overheating and that water in the radiator. We don't have radiators. And even the maintenance of an electric vehicle is different. So even if it does wind up costing a little more to buy, you may get this money back by reduced maintenance and reduced cost of, of energy. But we don't know that because they still feel very experimental. They are the exception rather than the rule. But the belief is that in the next 15 years, as more and more of them get out there and we understand, then it, you might say to yourself, actually, I'm going to be better off buying the electric vehicle. Don't bother with the subsidy. I'm actually cheaper in the long run to switch over. And that's, that's what I think the gamble is on.
0: Uh, Another question from a listener. Would the grid support uh, a massive demand? What would the grid have to go through, the electricity grid between now and 2035, or would it?
7: You heard me chuckling because one of our problems at the moment is that uh, back, back, and this is truly back, 2005, we, uh, we, meaning our government, took a look at what where electricity demand was going in this province, and it committed to expanding the grid. So this is where they were encouraging people to generate their own electricity, do these power plants, these wind power plants and solar plants, what have you. And lo and behold, rather than our demand for electricity going up, it went down. Today, in 2020, we actually consume less power off the grid than we did even in the year 2000. So, one of the reasons why we have this problem, and remember people yelled at, at Kathleen Wynn, they haven't yelled as much at Doug Ford, but they yelled at Kathleen Wynn because we were trying to sell all this surplus power. Well, nobody was giving us fair value for it, and so we're almost giving it away to our neighbors. Well, the bottom line is we've got a lot of surplus power on the grid at the moment, and therefore we're not at this point actually worried about it. Now, as more of these cars come online and we see how much power is being extracted, yes, there might be a concern, but also keep in mind that most people will be refilling their cars either at home uh, uh, overnight And overnight, we'd never have a problem overnight. We've got lots of electricity overnight or during the day. But again, it may not be during the prime hours that we need to heat and cool our houses. So uh, the feeling is that the grid is not the problem, at least here in Ontario.
0: Uh, That being said, I mean, this it would appear that this would be something you could figure out. I mean, if if they're producing so many cars by 2035 and they're all on the on the grid, wouldn't we be able to figure out now whether we can support it or not? Or whether well, see, it would be an issue at all.
7: The, the problem with that is you're assuming that the the technology in 2035 is roughly the same as it is in 2020, and this is mm. something that is changing. I'll give you another example. I was involved in building a building at McMaster that was going to house some computer labs, and we looked at the amount of heat that these computers were generating back in the good old days. So back in 1986 We had the PCXT and then the PCAT, and each new model, boy, it was generating more heat. We'd better have a lot of extra air conditioning because they're going to be throwing off all this heat. And then, as it turned out, as they got to fancier and fancier computers, they found a way to get you the enhanced processing and speed, and yet at the same time reduce the heat. So we spent all this money for an air conditioning system we didn't need. And that's, that's the problem, because there's going to be a lot of R&D. I think a GM committed to something like $27 billion over the next 15 years. Well, you know, uh, the only way this works is to keep refining the technology. So, yes, I can take a look at today's numbers and say whether I need to adjust the grid, but I think you'll find that these things will become even more energy efficient as we go, and it just may not be the problem we want it to be.
0: Uh, Another question from a listener, Um, uh, what about the footprint, the carbon footprint of a battery power or a battery-powered car Uh, by 2035, you know, let's say that's what we're working with now, Uh, what would the carbon footprint be of producing these cars?
7: Well, the the hope, of course, would be that it would be nearly neutral. Now, um, there are two versions of this. So what is the carbon footprint of the electricity you're putting in? All right, you know, I'm not burning gasoline, and therefore I'm not putting out carbon dioxide, but how do we generate the electricity in the first place? Today in Ontario, only 8% of our electricity is generated by burning natural gas. Most of it is either hydropower, as we get from Niagara, or nuclear power, wind, solar, what have you. And the 8% really is on the extreme days, either extreme cold or extreme hot days. That's when they fire up these uh, natural gas plants. To make up for the extra grid, so you know, in comparison to the cars, at least at this point, the generation of the electricity is more carbon neutral. And again, you've got 15 years to try to phase in some of these other things. In terms of the construction, uh, you're still going to need uh, oil. For instance, those cars are still going to have tires on them, and each tire you have contains something like I think it's a half a barrel of oil to make all that rubber on the road. So we still have using some of those things. We're going to ship things around. So right today, uh, when cars are assembled in one place, it's with parts made around the world and then assembled in that place. It's not all done on site. So, that, the, again, that's going to be a key question for these companies to look at. But I think the, the, the key to the announcement is this is a direction, and, and I'm not going to hold GM to 2035 to meet this, and I'm not going to hold them even to carbon neutrality. If they reduce their carbon emissions in total by 90 percent by 2035, hey, I'm not going to complain. that They're yeah. all going in the right direction. So this I see this as a strategic direction rather than as something an absolute dot-the-line-cross-the-T commitment.
0: Once everyone starts understanding how this process works, the mining of the materials in order to produce batteries, are we going to have people complaining that that is somehow hurting or harming the environment? Can we yeah. extract the materials that are needed without creating more of a situation?
7: Right. Well, I, I, I'm laughing again because anytime we humans do anything, we change the world around us, just living, breathing, even being in our homes during COVID, we're changing the world around us in some way. So I don't think we can ever eliminate the human um, intervention on the planet's surface. And as you move from one technology to another, you create problems. Scott, here's a simple way. I don't know how you make your coffee, but many people have become quite attracted to these single-cup brewing systems that we call Mm -hmm. them, the Keurig systems, Nespresso, all these lovely little pods. Well, then all of a sudden, we had these plastic pods in great quantities going into the landfill. How is that helping us? So now today, they've tried to do more research and found biodegradable pods. Absolutely right, you know the batteries you use today they're called lithium ion batteries uh boy, those are pretty high tech things and and dangerous things we've heard every now and again of fires caused by lithium ion batteries that overcharge or something like that. So we're going to be challenging the scientists. And and yes, I will say to you, absolutely, we will probably substitute one set of problems for another. That is the way it has always been on this planet, though. As you you introduce one technology, it creates its new challenges that were unforeseen when we adopted it.
0: Is it possible to recycle batteries? Is there a recycling process that can be done here?
7: Well, certainly today there is. So whether it's the old... uh, uh, alkali batteries that we used to have when I was a kid with flashlights and you might remember that they would sometimes seem to bubble up and acid would come out of them. We can recycle all of those things today and avoid the waste stream, but there's still there's still a cost to recycling. But you know, I, 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 I'm still I'm a believer at my heart I'm a believer in the power of science to solve problems. And yeah. as it solves one set of things it's got to think of the next one as it goes. And and I think again as we as we evolve as people uh, what was a problem at one time becomes a solution to something else, and what was a solution can become the problem. I just I think this is very bold on, on GM's part. Now the big question for me is: Are they doing this alone, or will we see everybody else jump on the bandwagon? Ford, Chrysler, uh, you know, Mercedes, Toyota, et cetera, et cetera, Nissan. I, I, are they reading the tea leaves? Is everyone going to get on this bandwagon? Are they going to be the lone voice? And and one of the challenges for business is you want to keep up to the curve. You don't want to fall behind, but you also don't want to get too far ahead. And and I will be interesting to watch has GM jumped the gun? Have they said too much too quickly? Don't know at this point and it'll be interesting to see how the other car companies react to it in the weeks and months ahead.
0: You've said something very and interesting, and I'm I'm very much a, a supporter of this. Is that technology will get us out of this? Uh, we've seen how uh, technology, with us working from home, has even made an impact on consumption because of a a global pandemic. So again, I you know, as it becomes profitable and it makes sense for companies to do this, and that's where the bucks are. We're going to see technology uh, solve these issues. So how do you balance that? uh... with uh... subsidies so you know if these cars are great and people want to buy them can we not provide them without you know cheap enough to not have a a subsidy a subsidy to to pay for them
7: you know when you're selling twenty five thousand or forty thousand cars a year out of two and a half million your we call it economy of scale being able to produce in volume and getting the economies of production aren't there the same way as the other models but as the numbers begin to grow the need for any kind of subsidy is going to fade away as it is now most governments around the world not just here in canada are subsidizing electrical vehicles much less than they were four or five years ago um, and and by the way the same goes to for a while we flirted with hydrogen vehicles or natural gas driven vehicles many of the buses on the road in hamilton are natural gas fueled and there was a subsidy to encourage that so You know, we do these subsidies to see what works, but eventually once we start getting a critical mass, those go away and the technology then becomes the standard. We might at one point have to subsidize you to to keep using gasoline. Who knows where that's going to go? But uh, I'm sure, absolutely certain as I'm sitting here, if you wanted to be an early adopter and get a subsidy, you'd better act in the next year or two. Because I think by the time we get to the middle of this decade, 2025, those subsidies will all be gone.
0: You talked about other options. There were, you know, companies have created hybrid. You talked about natural gas yep. or or yeah, other fuels or such hydrogen. Do you see this this format sticking, or do you see this? Do you see it changing again? It may move to something else.
7: Yeah, I wish my crystal ball was perfectly clear on this. You know, technology is a really funny thing to predict. Uh, we have seen technologies in my lifetime. Uh, do you remember when you were a young person, and, and uh, that was only a few years ago, Scott, but you had a record collection?
0: <laughs> yeah, vinyl, I knew you were going there, yep,
7: yep, A vinyl record collection. And you were so proud of it. You probably even stole a milk crate from somebody to hold your record collection. And then in a period of 18 months, records almost completely disappeared in favor of CDs. And now today, the students I teach at the university, CDs, oh, that's craziness. We just use digital. Everything's digital on a digital yeah. player. So one technology can be supplanted by another, and when one comes in, you don't necessarily know what the next one is going to be. So I I don't know that whatever GM is doing with electricity is going to be, the uh, by default, the standard in 2035, but I know that's the direction they're going, that's what they're challenging their research scientists to do. And it may be they'll find something else. You know, Maybe there'll be nuclear-powered cars. I, mm. I don't know. I just know if that's the direction, if that's what the scientists are looking for, then you will find lots of innovation in that field, and we won't be spending it on making better and better gas-powered vehicles.
0: Marvin Ryder's been with his business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University, talking about EVs and their future in, the, uh, in uh, this country moving forward. Marvin, thank you for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Be thank well. You. Take care.